Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Batman Nightcast, a podcast chronicling the comic book adventures of the Caped Crusader in the late 1980s and maybe beyond that. I mean, we'll see how this goes. No promises. <laughs> you know, we'll see. Uh, I'm Ryan Daly. I'm Chris Franklin. And this episode, we are interrupting our regular coverage of Jason Todd's post-crisis origin in Batman and the Year 2 storyline in Detective Comics in order to review a pair of slightly askew love stories published in Batman Annual Number 11. Now, according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, which is sort of the grail for us, uh, <laughs> it's our one-stop shop for all of this publishing info, mm-hmm. uh, this issue was on sale April 28th, 1987, the same month as Batman 409 and Detective Comics 576, which we have already covered on the last two episodes, respectively. The Batman Annuals began in 1961 as a reprint collection. In fact, the cover of Giant Batman Annual Number 1 says, First Collection Ever Published, on its cover. I have no idea if that's factual or hyperbole, but uh, despite the annual title, these reprint anthologies were published twice a year. In fact, seven Batman Annuals were published between 1961 and 1964. But then they stopped for nearly 20 years. There wouldn't be another Batman annual until 1982. When the title came back, though, it came back with a bang. Rather than reprinting classic stories, Batman Annual number 8 told an original, extra-sized story pitting the Dark Knight against his evil nemesis Ra's al Ghul in a story written by Mike W. Barr and drawn by Trevor Von Eden. And if you've ever heard me savage Trevor Von Eden's work on Black Canary or one of my other podcasts, note that this is nothing like that. This is good Trevor Von Eden. This is the Trevor Von Eden that was Frank Miller's first choice to pencil Batman year one. So two years later, in 1984, DC published not quite an annual, but Batman special number one, also written by Barr, this time drawn by Michael Golden. This story, called The Player on the Other Side, we have already alluded to on previous episodes as a sort of proto-version of Batman Year Two. It at least addresses some of the same themes in that story. In 1985, DC published Batman Annual Number 9, also written by Barr, and in 86, longtime series writer Doug Mensch scripted one of his last Batman stories in Batman Annual Number 10. And that brings us up to 1987's Batman Annual number 11, which features two stories. The first, a Clayface story originally produced during Len Wein's time editing the Bat books prior to this podcast's era. The second, a Penguin story written by then-current writer Max Allen Collins and featuring the debut of fan-favorite artist Norm Brayfogel. Woohoo! But, yeah, really. But before we take a look at these stories, we have a cover by the legendary John Byrne. The image shows a shadowed Batman with his back to us, leaping down at the two villains of this issue, Clayface number 3 and the Penguin, who stand in a yellow spotlight. Clayface 3 is holding his girlfriend, which some of you may know is a store mannequin. Chris, what do you think about this cover? Ah, this is a cover. Uh, I love how Byrne uses Batman's cape to make the bat shape around the logo, the word Batman. Uh, Helena looks like she's made out of plastic, which is really cool. Uh, Penguin looks just like his superpowers figure, so I guess he kind (laughs) of looks like he's made out of plastic. Uh, (laughs) But not really. Uh, I always dug how Byrne drew Batman's cape, cowl, etc., mostly black. Mm. And, of course, it's taken to extreme here because he's almost completely black, like the soles of his boots and 
the capsules on his utility belt. You kind of see the, the color in them, but uh, it's great. And I never noticed until working on this uh, episode that it's over by the UPC box. It says burn after Hannigan. So I guess Ed Hannigan did the layout on this one. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, or I was trying to think, like, did Ed Hannigan ever do a cover that was similar to this, and Byrne was kind of aping the style or or the image? But uh, he was the he was like the cover editor or the art director or something at mm. DC for a long time. So I'm assuming he did the layout. I don't know. You might be right though. Yeah, I mean, it's it's John Byrne who I don't know if he ever drew a bad cover. I think the the villains look great. Clayface looks great. Penguin looks great. He he does look exactly like his action figure, which is wonderful. Um, I wish we got more of an image of Batman in color, sort of in in his glory, rather than just the, the silhouette of his back. It's also like with the the yellow spotlight, like I, it feels almost like a missed opportunity to like have his shadow casting the bat symbol over them, but. I don't know. It's maybe in a surprint, maybe like in a, yeah, a blue yeah. a blue surprint or something. Yeah. yeah, something like that. Maybe. Um, I feel like a lot of this cover is taken up by a black silhouette of Batman, which is good, but it's not necessarily what I wanted. But the way he draws the other figures in color looks really, really good. So it's it's a decent cover. It's, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just it's all right. All right, well, we are going to take a short promo break right now, and then when we come back, Chris is going to tell you all about the first story. Stick around. The Too Old, Too New Podcast, a show dedicated to reviewing books from the bins and recent reads. I'm Bill. And I'm Seth. Be sure to listen to us on our Too Old, Too New Comic Book Podcast, where we talk about two old comic books and two new comic books every episode. Comic book fans don't miss out. Too Old, Too New is available on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, and Google Play. Okay, we're back, and we're going to take a look at the first story in Batman Annual Number 11, Mortal Clay. Uh, Alan Moore was the writer, George Freeman, the artist, John Costanza, the letterer, Laverne Kinzierski, colorist, Len Wein, editor. Preston Payne enjoys a night of TV at home with his wife, Helena. Well, that is, he enjoys the episode of All in the Family he's watching, but he's not at all happy with his company. 
Helena doesn't laugh at what he finds funny, and Preston feels this is just her snobbish demeanor trying to bring him down again. In fact, Preston believes that their once great love is dead, and all that remains is an increasingly bitter animosity between them. Typical stuff for a married couple who have drifted apart. Except Preston Payne is anything but typical. He is a superpowered man-man known as Clayface 3. His wife is a plastic mannequin, and their home is Arkham Asylum. Preston thinks back to when their love went wrong. He recalls how he nearly lost her in a museum fire shortly after they had met. Dogged by the Batman, Preston leaped from the burning museum into the river below. He searched the streets of Gotham City for what may have been months or even years before finding her in the window of Rosendale's department store. Isn't that just like a woman? Preston asks himself. After sneaking into the store with the morning crowd, Preston hid among the plastic Bibba dolls during the day before being reunited with his love at that night. Preston and Helena made the store their home. He would sleep and avoid customers during the day and dodge security guards at night to spend time with his wife. They had a very happy existence in ladies' evening wear. That is, until one night Preston found his beloved missing. After frantically searching the store for her, he found Helena parading around in her underwear in the lingerie department. Hurt and betrayed, Preston didn't let her know he had seen her in such a state of undress. The next night, Helena returned to ladies' evening wear, but nothing was the same. Preston observed a security guard removing Helena's expensive scarf from her neck. Assuming he was taking a token of her affection and not a present for his own wife, Preston attacked the guard and turned his body to protoplasm with his burning touch. Preston disposed of the guard's liquid remains five blocks away. Later at the store's magazine stand, he read that the body, or what was left of it, was found by the Gotham police. Helena remained cold and distant, so Preston began to worry perhaps she had another lover. When he caught her smiling at the bat signal flashing through the store windows, he had a prime suspect. In the streets below, Police Commissioner Gordon cordoned off Rosendale's, awaiting the arrival of the Batman. The arriving Cape Crusader knew that the guard was murdered by Clayface III and surmised he must be hiding in the store. Finding Batman stalking through his home, Preston's worst fears about his wife's infidelities were confirmed. Bursting through a pair of elevator doors, he surprised his hated foe, and their battle spread across the entire store. Although he fought valiantly, the Dark Knight was overwhelmed by Preston's enhanced strength and the threat of his melting touch. As Preston prepared to disintegrate the caped homewrecker, he looked up to see Helena, smiling. Convinced Helena enjoyed the sight of two men fighting for her affections, Preston first yelled at his wife and then broke down in despair before her. Surprisingly, Batman reached out his hand and offered his help. Returning to All in the Family, Preston recalls how Batman did indeed help him get his own room at Arkham. He even arranged for Helena to live there with him. But despite this, their love was over. Neither were brave enough to mention divorce. Preston admits he is tired of her indifference and wishes to be rid of her. One day he will be free, he thinks. After all, she can't live forever. Preston smiles. The end. Okay, Ryan, what do you think? Ah, now I remember. This is what a good Batman story looks like. <laughs> yes. It's been, oh. it's been a little bit. Of, it's been a while. <laughs> oh, take in that fresh air. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, quick before before getting into it, um, a few plugs for uh, other shows. 
Freeman, who uh, illustrated uh, this uh, this story, also illustrated the secret origin of Alan Scott, the original Green Lantern, and I covered that with Michael Bailey on the Secret Origins podcast. Speaking of that, Michael Bailey and Andy Leyland covered this issue on the Overlooked Dark Knight podcast, episode 5. So you can listen to that to compare and contrast our reviews. Um, I have a feeling we'll probably say a lot of the same things, though. Uh, I really I enjoyed the heck out of this story. Um, right from the beginning, I love the way George Freeman draws this clay face, in particular, his head. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love the original character design. Like, I, for, he reminds me of like the superpowers Mr. Freeze, and that he kind of yeah. has like this weird angular, like kind of like bubble helmet or glass helmet um, with like the his like sort of protoplasm. But Freeman doesn't quite draw it that way. To me, it looks more like there's a plastic bag over his head. Uh-huh. That's kind of like just like keeping everything in place. And when I look at when I look at his head, like the the bottom panel of page one, or even on page three, when he's like pulling himself out of the river, the image that comes to mind is like chicken marinating, like in a Ziploc bag in the fridge oh. or something like that. Like that's oh. like just something like that is holding his face barely in place. Like in that, yeah, it's so gross, it's so nasty. But I love the way it. It looks in this. It's so good. I also really, really dig uh, the way Freeman draws Batman, um, and I kind of, I kind of notice, especially when he's first walking in uh, to the department store, when we get our first good shot of him, and then when they start to fight, his Batman is like much bigger, specifically like broader than I think any kind of Batman that I've, we've really seen before this. It's kind of reminiscent of the way Bruce Tim would eventually design the animated series Batman and sort of the mm-hmm. look of the DCAU look with the very broad chest, long shoulders and everything. Because uh, prior to this, I mean, I always kind of think of the way Neil Adams and Jim Aparo did. He was muscular, but he was lean, you know, mm-hmm. he, and he had that sort of like grace and the long scalloped cape and the ears kind of lend itself to a tall, skinny silhouette. Whereas Freeman really makes him look big in the chest, like he, like almost like you can tell how muscular, like how much he works out, um, and it's just a really cool design that that was a little bit different when seeing it in this one. Yeah, I, I think uh, Freeman's art. He's it's a very Dick Sprang Batman, uh, mm, yeah, I which I, which which I dig, and he and he inked the uh, the uh, autobiography of Bruce Wayne uh, over Joe Staten for yep. uh, Brave and the Bold number one ninety seven. So uh, written by Alan Brennert, yep. uh, you know one of the classics of all time Batman stories. Uh, so yeah, he I think maybe he was channeling a little bit of that too, uh, and. Uh, yeah, the, I'm never going to be able to eat chicken again. I don't think. Now, though, so. <laughs> yeah, I ruined it for you. <laughs> Rob's like, yes, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, the, I, I, I can't. I can't even. This is a classic. Even when I read this as a kid, I bought this off the stand, and I had read a few Alan Moore stories uh, by this time. I had read for the man who has everything and whatever happened to the man of tomorrow. Uh, and, you know, absolutely loved uh, For the Man Who Has Everything. I had even then had a few problems with the ending of uh, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow. Uh, but still, it's it's still a great story. I hadn't read a lot of Swamp Thing, uh, but uh, I would read that later. But I, I knew that Alan Moore's work was a step above a lot of other comic work, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, I, I really I, I really like this story. It's a great sequel to the uh, Lynn Wein Marshall Rogers original, and of course mm-hmm. Lynn Wein uh, wrote that one. He's editing this one, 
and man, Alan Moore could write the hell out of some uh, Lynn Ween creations. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> the Swamp Thing, and then and then Clayface. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, another thing that gets me with this. And I don't know if we brought this up. But we covered the the Mud Pack on on Secret Origins, mm-hmm. and I think I feel so sorry for both. I feel sorry for for Clayface Three Preston to a point. I mean, he is so he is so insane. I mean, he's he is so out of touch with reality, even more, probably more so than almost any other Batman villain. Mm-hmm. And of course he's got the, the acro Magelli uh, disease to begin with that he tried to fix with Matt Hagen's blood and all that stuff. So, you know, he, he didn't have an evil motivation. He, he, he like, I think at the time you said he's like more like a Marvel villain or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, but I feel so sorry for his victims. I mean, there's just something about this poor security guard. I mean, yeah, he's he's shoplifting a scarf for his wife because he can't afford it, and then he melts him into a pile of goo. And it's just like you know, usually when villains kill people in these stories, I don't get real, you know, I don't really feel it. It just happens. But it's like, man, I just you know, I put myself in this guy's place. I mean, that's that's uh, you know, the art and the story really just put that across. Just how horrifying. Oh yeah, it's horrific. Yeah, it is. It's just and it's just so. I mean, there's nothing left of him but a pile of goo. It's just, oh, God. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I mean, it's – Alan Moore is, like, at this point where he has such a reputation, such a name that I, I think even, like, uh, amongst, you know, our circle and our community, there's probably more backlash against him and, and a sort of rejection of things like Watchmen and the killing joke. Um, because of sort of the legacy of of what they wrought on the comic book industry and mm. people trying to imitate them and trying to one up them uh, and there 's just been so much trouble with that, but I think if if you look at his alan moore 's work that isn 't put on that pedestal, um, you know like whatever happened in the man of tomorrow is one thing, but if you just look at for the man who has everything or if you just look at I mean, I think The Killing Joke is a better story than this one in almost every way, but it's hard not to look at The Killing Joke and think about all of the problems that came as a result of that story. So if you mm-hmm. just take that off the table and look at this as a as a character piece, that isn't really... I mean, this one is, is a villain character study, and it's right, we get inside Clayface's head, but it's an unreliable narrator, which is a wonderful thing when you have a visual medium like comics, when you see the way Preston is narrating it and the way he's describing events in his head, when you realize that's not what is happening. That's not... Like, the, the art clearly shows he's misinterpreting reality um and you get batman coming as just this you know this sort of unavoidable agent for this conflict that we have to have at the end to bring him down we don't get into batman's head batman hardly has any dialogue um it's very quiet but it's just so expertly done the way everything kind of like sets up because he foreshadows it in the beginning like with the the bat signal and everything it's like he he sets up this obligatory fight by the end of it and it's really, really well done. Um, I, I actually, I think my favorite part of this is when Batman is in the store and he's walking up. It's on page 15. And along the left side, there are three panels of the hallway by the elevator, the row of elevators. And Batman is getting closer and closer. And you just see up at the top, upper left corner, the elevator arrow is moving and the light indicating that the floor is going down and Clayface is getting closer as Batman. And just as Batman gets in front of that elevator, Clayface rips the door open and tries to jump him. 
and it's yeah. it's like a wonderful little moment of like suspense that it's like this is it's such a cinematic type of story like and the, like the way the fight is choreographed and everything with Batman seeming to knock him out and he's taking the handcuffs and you just get a close up of Clayface's eyes opening and he punches Batman through the wall like he goes fall, falling into the other display yeah, it's fantastic. The storytelling in this is just is just fantastic. It's uh, it's a shame that George Freeman didn't. He did a, he did a few more things for DC. He did the you know the he he did the Aquaman special that came out uh, in '88. He, he also inked the 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 JLA Secret Sanctuary origin in in Secret Origins number forty six over Kurt Swan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, but but uh, I really wish that they had. I don't know. Maybe he's one of those artists that's not a quick. Uh, you know, not a monthly guy, but I wish they'd like shackled him to his his art desk and gave him more Batman to do. <laughs> 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 and, and you know, you brought up a really good point too about the story. It's like, you know, more never has Clayface like come to the realization that Helena's not, you know, not a real. You know, it's he 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 keeps his you know dementia you know going through the whole story, but he somehow manages to break. Like when he shows, he, I mean, I didn't put that in my synopsis, but he shows the store workers getting the mannequin and moving her from ladies' wear into lingerie. But it doesn't, it doesn't break the story up, which it could. It's like under other hands, that could totally throw everything off mm-hmm. uh, because it could violate the telling of the story. But it doesn't here, and uh, you know that's that's just you know Alan Moore, like you said. I mean, there's you know his legacy now is a little. A little muddy because, yeah, what you know, what he did changed comics. Maybe not for the better in in every regard. Uh, and but again, that's not the fault of the original work. That's that's the fault. Also, of his, his personality yeah. is not something that lends himself a lot of support and no. a lot of favors in the community. No, no, that's true too. Yeah, he, he you know, he's eccentric is is a mild term to use for Alan Moore. Uh, so yeah, it's. Uh, but I mean this. Types of stories like this, little quiet stories like this, really do prove the they prove the legend. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, two two quick notes. Um, when Batman walks into Rosendale's department store, um, just sort of like silently, like he's like the hostage negotiator slash like fixer that like the police are just making way for him, and everybody's crowded around and they're just letting him go in by himself. Um, it reminds me of Batman walking into Arkham during in the graphic novel Arkham Asylum by Grant Morrison, which mm. further fuels more of the Alan Moore Grant Morrison debates. Yeah. Um, and then uh, just prior to that, just like on the the page before, Vicky Vale confuses Clayface three with Clayface two. Mm-hmm. Wasn't Clayface two dead at this point? Well, it's according to when he when Moore wrote this. Oh, you okay. Know? So yeah, if this was before Crisis. Yeah. If this had been in the inventory for like a year or more. Yeah. It makes me think George Freeman really is a slow <laughs> penciler. <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> that could be the case. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. I can't see DC sitting on an Alan Moore story longer than they had to back then. <laughs> yeah, that seems, yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> or now even. If they found one in the vault, they're like, you know, go draw this. Well, maybe not that Twilight mm-hmm. thing that he pitched where, you know, Captain Marvel has incest with Mary Marvel and stuff. But, you know, but. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Thank God that didn't come out. Woof. <laughs> <laughs> 
But yeah, this is it, it's kind of weird that this doesn't come up more often. It's reprinted in the various, you know, Alan, the, the, the DC universe by Alan Moore, which mm-hmm. DC has published different iterations of that over the past 20 or so years, uh, trade paperback. Uh, but it's not it doesn't come up as often as you think it would because it is such a nice little done in one story. It's a nice character piece. And you're right. It, it There's something about it that, uh, of course, this is before the animated series. It kind of almost feels like one of those villain spotlight episodes mm-hmm. of the animated series where, you know, Kevin Conroy only has a couple of lines of dialogue, you know, and uh Batman's which they like that they like to keep Batman as the as the the shadowy figure that just comes in fixes the problem and leaves you know and uh, uh that's that's what this feels like so it, it's 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 a perfect little Batman story it's I'm surprised that it, by Alan Moore I'm surprised it doesn't get reprinted more often than it does mm-hmm. yeah I agree I like that the art barely acknowledges that he's actually in Arkham Asylum like the the like the framing device and the opening and closing pages, it looks like he's just on the set of a sitcom. Like that, yeah. that's what like the, the, the like each like his and hers love seat chairs or whatever with like a stairs in the background that are just watching the two. And it's just like the one panel where you just see a close up of the Sony surveillance security camera, like yeah. watching them. That just kind of gives you the tip off that yeah, he's he's actually in a cell that's designed to look like this uh, all in the family type of living room. It- it even looks like their living room on yeah. All in the Family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that, that's yeah, the whole design, like with the, the stairway in the background and everything. Yeah, yeah it, it is kind of weird though. At the beginning, when it shows, it, he mentions Carol O'Connor by name, and it's clearly him. But it looks like he's got some kind of almost like a policeman's uniform or something on in the first panel. I don't know if that was maybe his. Uh, I don't know if Arch. I can't remember if Archie was some kind of uh, in some kind of lodge or something where he mm-hmm. wore a. A uniform. That's what it kind of looks like. Either because he looks like he's got a yeah, he's got a, a nightstick. nightstick. Yeah, so it, it's like I don't know if DC was trying to uh, disguise it, but uh, you know, but they call him by name, and then and it, clearly that's Edith on the TV on the last page. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I mean, it looks just like uh, Gene Stapleton there. So I don't, I don't know. I, I'm not sure what that first panel is. We're getting nitpicky here, but it just it always struck me as odd because. I recognize that was Archie Bunker. Even before he said uh, who it was, he was watching. You know, yeah. So. Well, they're like it's a, a very like nice, not quite photo reference, but very close uh, likeness. I'm wondering if it was uh, like another Carol O'Connor thing, like if he did like another movie or another TV show that, it, that the picture was drawn from a reference that wasn't All in the Family. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know when uh, you know he's, he's 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 talking in Archie Bunker dialogue, but this was. Probably around the time In the Heat of the Night first came on TV, but I don't know. He was a cop in that, obviously. So. Yeah, but I don't know if he ever dressed this way like this. No, I don't think so. No. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, really, really cool, really nice little short story. Um, again, yeah, it has that it has that villain spotlight thing where this was. I mean, it's all in the villain's head. So Batman is just this reactionary agent that comes in the last couple pages. Um, but it's it's still a really good story. Mm-hmm. All right. Anything else on this one? I don't think so. I think you know it's 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 rare, but this is such a good story. I don't have a whole lot to say about it other than, damn, this is a good story. <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> what? I, I don't. What are, what are we complaining about then? Like, what, I don't know. How to I, do I don't this. know. <laughs> it just feels so alien to me from the past several months. <laughs> All right, well, then we'll take another promo break, and we'll be back with a Max Allen Collins story. Maybe this will give us something. (laughs) Hold on tight. Andy, 
I have an amazing idea. Let's do a podcast. We've been talking about doing this for years. That sounds great. So, what should we talk about? Something no one else is talking about. Batman. (sighs) Mike, there are hundreds of Batman shows out there. You used to do one. True. Well, maybe we could do an index show. Are you insane? We both already host those. True again. Okay, maybe we could talk about Batman stories no one else does. Like the Jerry Conway run. Ooh, ooh, yeah, yeah, we could discuss his entire run and then go into the Doug Mensch run. But we won't be tied down to that. We need to be free to talk about other Batman stories from that era as well. And we could call it The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. Great! The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. New episodes drop on the 14th and 28th of every month. The show and the website, www.overlookeddarknight.com, launch in May of 2017. From the Fortress of Bailitude Podcasting Network. by Max Allen Collins, with art by Norm Frickin' Brayfogle, lettered by Albert de Guzman, colored by Adrian Roy, and edited by Denny O'Neill. Oswald Cobblepot, better known as the Penguin, appears before the parole board dressed in a custom prison-striped tuxedo. He pleads with the board that he has reformed, that he will no longer commit crimes, bird-themed or otherwise, because he has fallen in love. The Dark Knight appears before the board to argue against Penguin's early release. The board members, less than happy with the Batman's vigilante nature, side with the Penguin and grant his parole. A frustrated Batman storms out of the prison. Back in the Batmobile, Robin takes a positive view, suggesting, hey, maybe the Penguin really has changed. Batman, he's not buying it. Later, dressed in his, well, traditional blue and violet tuxedo... Oswald arrives at the apartment of his lady love, Dovina Partridge. Oswald and Dovina had corresponded via bird-themed letters during his time in prison. Eventually, their ornithologically-tinged flirtations hatched into a legit romance. Now, meeting for the first time in person, Oswald gets down on bended knee and proposes to Dovina. She says she will happily accept his offer as long as he can stay on the straight and legal path. 
That night, Batman and Robin are summoned to Gotham Police Headquarters by the sight of the bat signal in the sky. Batman assumes the Penguin is back to his old tricks, but Commissioner Gordon just wants the dynamic duo to deal with a series of liquor store robberies. As insulting as that sounds to both the caped crusaders and the police, Batman and Robin do foil the liquor store robbers with ease. One of them coughs up that the Penguin put the word out on the street, assembling his old henchmen. Batman confers with Gordon, who says... All of their sources suggest the Penguin is still abiding by his parole. He's even opened up an umbrella factory. Later, Batman goes to see Davina Partridge. She stands up for her man, telling the Dark Knight that Oswald has reformed, that her love will keep him honest and law-abiding. She asks Batman to trust her and Penguin. In response, Batman and Robin go stake out the umbrella factory. Robin notes that the security guards are too heavily armed for such a job, and Batman recognizes them as former cronies in Penguin's gang. All of the Penguin's employees at the factory are criminals, in fact, and as soon as the dynamic duo drop down in their midst, the punches start to fly. The Penguin sounds an alarm and tries to hide, but Batman catches him. What he discovers, however, is that the alarm summons the cops, because Batman and Robin broke into an honest umbrella factory. The Penguin had gone legit. The business was on the up and up. The only problem was, he employed his old friends, all ex-cons, and consorting with other criminals put him in violation of his parole. Cut to another meeting of the parole board. This time, Batman is there to argue in favor of Oswald Cobblepot, but the board ignores the Dark Knight and puts the Penguin back in his cage. Batman feels guilty for not trusting the Penguin and getting him locked up again. To make amends, he arranges for Davina Partridge to visit her Oswald in jail, where she finally accepts his marriage proposal. The end. Alright, Chris, what did you think? This is going to blow your mind, but I really like this story. (laughs) (laughs) I, I agree. I think... Now, the bar was fairly low, but by a wide margin, this is the best Max Allen Collins that we have seen, and I think we will see. Uh, but yeah, it is a good story. Yeah, I, I think this feels like – I don't know. This feels more like – and I have to stop and remind myself this is a Collins story. This feels like the Bar Allen Davis stories happening before year two. I mean this feels like that – Yeah, uh, take, actually, yeah. Take, take the old you know, golden age – Bill Fingerish type Batman story and give it a little bit of a modern spin. You know, I mean, this I could see this being in a Golden Age Batman comic, uh, or I could even see a little bit of it from the '60s TV show. I don't think Burgess Meredith ever would have completely went legit. Which I mean, I think 95% of Penguin stories have something to do with oh, he's going legit this time. <laughs> uh, you know, he's running for the mayor, or you know, uh, but uh, but you know, this one actually he really is going legit. So. Uh, and it's the story itself is is a lot of fun. It's really well done, and then it's drawn by Norm freaking Brayfogle. <laughs> yeah, no, I I completely agree with all of that. I I think um, it, like you you kind of struck out. It, it, there's still something about the story that feels a little old fashioned. It feels a little bit older than the era that this that these stories are supposedly coming out in. Post year one. You know, every it feels like we should be jumping immediately into, and and what Barr and Davis were doing too. It feels like we should be jumping into this. There's a little bit grittier, a little bit darker era for Batman, but Collins was still kind of used to, and maybe this coming from the comic strips, he was still kind of writing stories that felt of a silver age, but 
weren't really making the adjustments all the time. But I think in this one, he gets it. Like, he, he kind of cracked it. This does feel like an older Golden or Silver Age type of story with just enough of a modern spin to make it feel uh, enjoyable. And, and it not necessarily current, but it's still kind of just, yeah, it's just a fun little romp. So I, I did dig this, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it, I think that, Barr, one thing, I mean, I said Barr, huh? Yes, I feel like Barr wrote this. Uh, one thing with Collins uh, it, that we've talked about is like he'll have those like gritty moments uh, and then he'll have these totally silly moments where Batman's, you know, walking down the street in Crime Alley, uh, that horrible drug deal in the second part of the Jason origin, uh, you know, weird things like that. But he doesn't, like, he doesn't quite get the gritty, uh, the gritty feel he's going for. But I do really think he balanced it out nicely. And, uh, you know, it's it's amazing. Just, you know, it's like, why didn't we get more of these type of stories? You know, this this would have been this would have been fine. It's I even like he's got a very uh, bar like a line from Batman that actually works. He's like, I'll cut you a deal. Spill and you keep your teeth. You know, I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he's got this smile on his face when he says it, which Norm Brayfogle arrives. I mean, he's not quite as abstract as he'll get at some points. But he he arrives almost fully formed here. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is clearly Norm Brayfogle's Batman. I mean, right from the get go, and yeah. uh, it's fantastic. And he's here. He's finally here, people. <laughs> It'll be a few more months before he stays, but he is here. So yeah, right. <laughs> and yeah, with uh, with Norm Brayfogle, one of the things I always notice is like the cape and. I don't want to say it's like McFarlane influence because they're coming around the same time, but uh, you do see sort of the nature of the cape changes length, changes shape a lot depending on just the mood of the panel of where it is. Um, mm-hmm. And you look at something like uh, on page 10 when Batman is in Davina's apartment and he's talking to her, you can clearly see by the outline that the cape doesn't go past his feet. Like, it's it's hanging by his legs, but you can see the bottom of the scallop silhouette next to his feet, so it's not quite there. And then you look at the next page, page 11, when Batman and Robin are standing next to each other after they've revealed themselves, and the cape he's wearing looks like it's big enough to cover a swimming pool. It's like a tarp. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's just artistic license. I, I know, yeah. I know. And Bray Fogle does it all the time. He will do it forever throughout his run. And it's just something that I kind of, I kind of accept that he's got like a, a living cape that just sort of changes whatever it takes to make like the panel look as cool uh, as it can. Um, one thing I, I kind of always thought, and I, it wasn't until I really scrutinized this um, a little bit more, but the two scenes when Batman is at the parole board and he storms out of the uh, out of the parole board hearing um, it's on page four when he slammed when he slams the door the first time and Robin is sitting there reading a comic he's like that bad huh and then on the last page he slams the door and he's walking and Robin is sitting there that would have been so easy to draw the exact same panel and just repeat that panel mm-hmm. and I'm almost wondering because the the comedic effect would have been the same like you get you get what's happening and I'm like why didn't he just copy the same thing? Like it, it would have saved him a little bit of time. But, <laughs> true. Yeah. <laughs> That's but yeah true. They, are, they are a little bit different, but it's the same moment and it's really, it, it plays well. Yeah. I will point out that Robin is w- reading a copy of whisper, which is a comic from, uh, was that 
it was first comics, right? First that did that, and Bray Fogle drew that uh, at one point. So yeah, that was that was a nice little little nod there. Yeah, (laughs) I love Bray Fogle's Robin, his his Jason Robin in this one, very much like Alan Davis has that very sort of sprite, youthful look. Like he's just like so tiny, has like that like almost like ballerina dancer type of legs and everything. Like the whole look of him. Very, very cool. You definitely get the contrast between Batman and Robin, which I like. I I, I, I like that as well. And, and another thing about Bray Fogle I really like is uh, that he's underestimated on is his acting, uh, <laughs> like with the characters. Because when Batman comes to Davina's door, she's got this robe on and she's showing quite a bit of cleavage. But Batman walks past her and she grabs her her robe and clenches it up, you know. And she holds it there for several panels. You know, I thought that was a nice little touch that she's like, oh, this guy's come to the door. And, she, you know, she covers herself up. <laughs> I thought, just little things like that. You know, I thought, that's just it's yeah, the panel where Batman and Robin are standing on that bar in the uh, the catwalk in yeah. Penguin's factory. I mean, that's that's very Adam West and Burt Ward right there. Besides, mm-hmm. you know, other than the crazy cape. Uh, you know, it's you can just hear almost hear Adam West's voice coming out of Batman at that point. So yeah. it's just this is this is just a lot of fun. It's it's a fun fun story. And and man, the Penguin. You're right. I mean, it's kind of weird. I, I was trying to think where did the Penguin's blue tuxedo coat and I mean his pants were always purple. Right. But I I don't know if that's like the influence of the. Um, of the filmation cartoon, like from the sixties coming through and, or, or what, because most comics up and through the eighties still drew it as black with blue highlights, you know, Uh, but I honestly think that, uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, uh, I think he was the one that kind of cemented that in the style guides as just being blue. So Mm -hmm. then you got your superpowers figure that was the blue tux is who's who entries got the blue tux. And in this comic, he's wearing the blue tux. So, yeah. <laughs> More than that, what I love is the coloring on the umbrella. It's yes. the red, yellow, and blue alternating yes. colored umbrella. Oh, yep. That's and such that, a detail that, easy, that would be easy to forget and just do like a standard whatever solid cover umbrella. But the fact that they make it tri-colored is wonderful. Yeah, I love that. It's great. <laughs> I I have one one note of sort of like a personal thing with this story. I've read this story three times, I think. The first time I read it, I misread Dovina's name. I read it as Bovina with a B, as in bovine, as in cow. Oh. And I was like, first of all, that just seems cruel, like to call yeah. her a cow. Because uh, mm-hmm. she's bigger, I was like. Second, it doesn't make sense. The whole thing with like their dialogue and everything is a uh, is um it's all bird themed. Her last name is Partridge. I was like, they're really. I was like, why are they screwing up her name like that by calling her like Cowbird and like this is like this is, what a kind of dumb name. And then the second time I read it, I was like, oh no, they didn't do anything wrong. I'm the idiot. I read it wrong. <laughs> it's it's Dovina, like a dove. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was like, well. All right, now they're really hitting us over the head, but at least they're not screwing it up and being insulting. Well, see, I think that's why this story works because Collins doesn't – he just goes for it. Yeah, yeah. He totally skids into the whole bird theme, the whole corny – you know, and and to me – they, 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 DC could not figure out what to do with the Penguin. It's it's a shame. As far as I know, Davina never appears again. 
Uh, I don't think no, she I, does. I think the next time we see the penguin is the three-part penguin affair, which I don't think it, it like completely ignores this. I think. Right. Yeah, I think you're right. And if we get the Secret Origin special with the 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 origin with the Sam Keith art mm-hmm. and all that. Uh, you know, he can O'Neill can never crack the code with the penguin. They tried to make him more thuggy, like in that Secret Origin story. Uh, they tried to make him more of a tech villain in the penguin affair and things like that. And it, it, it took Chuck Dixon in the iceberg lounge to finally find a great handle on a modern version of the penguin. But I kind of wish Davina had stuck around. I mean, it would have been interesting, you know, if they, if they did the iceberg lounge and the penguins like, okay, I'm legit. And he gets back with Davina and then he's got the iceberg lounge going on when he's obviously not really legit. (laughs) It's a front, uh, that would have been a nice little bit with the Penguin, and they could have even had it going back and forth uh, in the comics, you know, because the Penguin did appear a lot in the 90s as that uh, the crime boss character, you know, and it, it even did it on the animated series on the new Batman Adventures. The Penguin appeared quite a bit in that role, and uh, I think that's a great way to use the character, and it doesn't ignore the history he had with Batman, but he's kind of, he, he it seems as if he's moved on, and it finally answers that like I said, 95% of Penguin stories, he's <laughs> going legit. Uh, so uh, he goes legit, but not really. And then Batman can't prove that he's not legit. So uh, th- she would have fit right in with that if they had I, done it. Yeah, I actually think that would have been really cool and really interesting. I mean, they, they did uh, – they they went the opposite way and really had him more just surrounded with kind of like, you know, beautiful – club-going women, you know, like supermodel type of women or whatever, always just sort of contrast that, you know, he was ugly and nobody would give him the time of day until he became rich, and now he can surround himself with, you know, these type of women and everything. But I think you're right, like, actually giving him a wife that he sort of has to hide his criminal nature from, um, and and maybe she maybe she knows the truth, she just doesn't want to believe it, so she kind of goes into a kind of willful ignorance. I think that would have been a really interesting thing to do. Mm. I mean, just watch the TV show Boardwalk Empire. They have played with that for like three seasons. So, yeah. <laughs> um, both of these have very sort of villain spotlight, but very kind of done-in-one cinematic approaches. And I think the Clayface story would have made an excellent episode of Batman the Animated Series. And the Penguin story would have made a really fun episode of the old 60s show. Uh, mm-hmm. Even though it yeah. doesn't have a cliffhanger in the middle of it, so you can't really, <laughs> but if if they had just done one half like half hour part, one part episode, it could um, have been a season three episode. Yeah, you know, yeah, they, yeah. That's what yeah. they broke away from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they had to throw Batgirl in there, but other than that, it would work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we we just had two really strong, really fun Batman stories in this in this annual. This was a really nice reprieve. Um, yes, and and by two great teams. I mean. Alan Moore and George Freeman were a great pairing. And then I, I would have said, you know, Norm Frickin' Brayfogle's art can save this story, even this Max Allen Collins story. But you know what? Collins didn't do anything wrong in this story. He he brought it. This was a fine story. Yep. So. I agree completely. I, I was totally happy with this. And I remembered I remembered enjoying this story. Mm-hmm. You know, and like I said, I had I had to somewhere in my brain I told myself this was a bar story and <laughs> and I have to remind myself it's not. It's a Collins story. And uh it's it's a it's a fun great little story so yeah way to go way to go max you you did it (laughs) (laughs) and the next episode we'll do batman 410 we'll see (laughs) we'll we'll see we'll see yeah it might be better i i uh my memory is is that things don't get any worse uh you know (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> we hit the nadir. We hit the nadir. Like we'll we'll see where they go. So right. Yeah. Uh, okay, folks. We are going to take yet another promo break, and then we will come back with listener feedback from the last episode. Stick around. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Working together, we saved the planet. And I believe that if we stayed together as a team, we would be a force that could truly work for the ideals of peace and justice. Every episode. My name is Jean. I'm a Martian. Every adventure. <sighs> okay. You guys are so slow. Every hero. Whatever you think you're doing, if you present a threat to the world... The Justice League will take you down. Cindy and Chris Franklin bring you JLU Cast. Whatever the future holds, we'll make those choices ourselves. Don't say you don't love me. I'll never say that. Covering the complete animated run of Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. And the adventure continues. There's strength in numbers. What? Like a bunch of super friends? More like a Justice League. Last episode covered Detective Comics 576, the second part of Batman Year 2, in the first issue with Todd McFarlane on art. We got tons of likes, shares, favorites, and retweets all over the social media, which we, of course, appreciate so much. We also got a bunch of comments on the website, which you can find, fireandwaterpodcast.com. The first comment came from David Ace Gutierrez, who said, My heart is with you guys. Yeah, uh, and he also reminded us the art will get better in a few months. That is true. We will, you know, there there will be some some rough spots ahead, but it will improve. Yes, uh, he said, keep the signal shining bright, lads. You'll be hitting the good years before you know it. Uh, <laughs> and then Chris Lewis agreed with David, saying, "I am so glad that you're stepping up the tempo on these books. The unmitigated despair in your voices, really, we sounded that bad. The unmitigated despair in your voices as you slogged through the synopsis and critique of this issue made me feel guilty for listening." I don't want to hear you torture yourselves by forcing your way through stories you can't stand. Blow past the duff issues and revel in the good stuff. <laughs> I think this episode is going to be a relief for the listeners just as much as it was for us. <laughs> really? I honestly did. I honestly do. Yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Rob Kelly from, you know, all the shows here on the Fire and Water <laughs> Network uh, quoted my line from the last episode. Tom McFarlane is the comic art equivalent of hair metal. Uh, Rob said the whole Fire and Water Network was worth it just for this comment. <laughs> well, thanks, Rob. I guess I've peaked. That's the most profound <laughs> thing I'll ever say. So there you go. He, he really, he told us like two different places that he loved that that line. <laughs> <laughs> the once and maybe future podcaster J. David Weeder said last episode needed more cowbell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting "Don't Fear the Reaper" in every episode of year two. So. Yeah. And we already used it for a Scarecrow comic before, but... Lewis said, playing the Reaper's advocate, why not a stylized pistol sword? Real versions go back to the 17th century, and they show how Caspian isn't in the business of preserving life, whether in melee or ranged combat. His disregard for the GCPD may be likened to Neo mowing down helpless security guards and SWAT officers. The police may represent the law, but not justice in Caspian's eyes, and those tools would sooner kill him than the scum their system is protecting. Compared to other characters, the Reaper may be the most consistently portrayed in this issue. Um, I mean, if you are coming down on the side of the Reaper, you could make that argument. I, I mean, the difference is the Reaper is clearly the villain of this piece, whereas Neo was our hero, so... 
and they had established that the the I don't I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I see what I see what he's saying. I, with with Bruce being kind of all over the map, hmm. the the Caspian and the slash the Reaper is um is more in in he's more consistent in his own character uh, through the story. But uh, I think our point at the time was. He's still not a character you can get behind as an anti-hero. He's, you know, he's just straight up villain in this story, like you said. Yeah. yeah. Dan Doherty said, when you began covering the storyline, I dug out my Batman Year Two trade from 1990 to follow along. It had been such a long time since you reviewed Part One. When I grabbed my Year Two trade for this episode, there was a thick layer of dust on the bookmark. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. I obviously we have picked up the pace yeah. in our episode releases. So. <laughs> Uh, Santaran answered one of our lingering questions, saying Joe Chill's style of hat is a newsboy cap. Nicholas Prom of Comic Reflections piped in that it is also called a driver's cap, and Ward Hill Terry referred to it as a Sally cap. So, we couldn't come up with a name of it, and we've now got three different <laughs> names for it, so... Andy Leyland called a jaunty cap, so I, that's another one there, so I don't know. <laughs> so that doesn't actually help us at all. <laughs> No, no, it doesn't. No. <laughs> uh, uh, Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog said, when this series came out, I loved it to pieces. Not as much as year one, but a ton. I thought the Reaper looked cool. I thought the two art styles were wildly different, but both were solid. And as I said before, bring back the Batman reveals his identity to Joe Chill, who is sub- subsequently killed, hit me in the continuity feels. Then I have heard you guys scrape the very flesh off the bone of this story. This was about as brutal as a review as I have heard on the network. Could my memories of this story be so off? Is it that bad? Yep. I still like that Joe Chill. I still like that the Joe Chill part was brought back into continuity. Um, yeah, you know that kind of that kind of got me when Ange, when Ange said, I mean, because Ange is obviously a longtime listener and friend of the network. It's been on a lot of our shows, and uh, when he said that about the review being really brutal. Uh, you know, it kind of made me think, well, you know, maybe we, we've, we've pretty much established what we feel about this. Maybe going forward, maybe not. Maybe we won't <laughs> quite cut it quite to the bone <laughs> as much as we have done <laughs> in the past because we've kind of already, you know, stated up front at this point. This is not this is not Mike Barr's best Batman work. Uh, we preferred his previous work on the title better. So <laughs> we don't have to share all of our criticisms we can just share enough to get the point across and the next episode will be about 20 minutes long (laughs) yes there you go (laughs) um a new commenter named jared mithrander said light yagami pretty quickly jumped to killing the cops trying to catch him and he still has defenders i had to look up this reference light yagami is from a manga series called death note i've never read it i'm not really familiar with it but I, I kind of get the point that he's coming across as there's a character who's sort of a, a vigilante type who's uh, escalated to killing cops and people still like it. So, I, again, I, I don't know why we like we, we stirred up a lot by saying, like, the Reaper went from killing villains to killing cops and now he's somehow worse, but I don't know. <laughs> I, I think, you know, I mean, and I'm there probably is a version of the Punisher where he killed cops, but usually if the Punisher kills a cop, it's a dirty cop. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's one that he knows is working with the the mob or, or something like that. I don't think Frank Castle just in most versions doesn't just go out and mow down cops doing their job, you know? So I, I think that's, I think that's the kind of anti-hero we're used to in comics mm-hmm. and the Reaper's clearly on the other side of that for us. So. Right. 
Uh, Diablo Frank from the Rolled Spine Podcast Network said, This was almost certainly my first purchase of a Todd McFarlane comic, but I never remember it as such. My recollections always favoring Incredible Hulk 340 or Amazing Spider-Man 313. Much like Chris, I was drawn to all of the cool rock elements, but experienced cognitive dissonance from the oil and water mix of artists. I'm an Alfredo Alcala fan, and I can see the appeal of McFarlane, but they each play to each other's weaknesses. I'm sure I dug all of the violent mayhem, but the storytelling was trash, and I was bored by the parts with the normal people pushing poor B-plots and backstory uphill. Creators before and since had much fresher and more engaging takes on both the Dark Mirror and Batman Meets the Shadow stories. I've never mooned over Mask of the Phantasm as many fans do, but it's certainly superior to this junk. It perhaps goes without saying that I never bought the Year 2 trade and have never read the full story. I had planned to read along with you guys, but after doing so with Part 1, I'm content to just listen to your breakdowns. I used to question Denny O'Neill's judgment in scrubbing Year 2 from continuity, especially in light of Year 3 still standing. But I have not been at all enamored with the Detective Comics issues you've featured this far, Alan Davis notwithstanding. I've long asserted that Mike W. Barr played as major a role in conceiving the modern interpretation of the Dark Knight as Frank Miller, perhaps more so, in fact. But I also now realize he's responsible for many of the reasons I grew to hate Batman as well. Wow. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's funny because for the most like for most of it, Barr was saddled with much brighter, much flashier artists, so we don't kind of think of him as being sort of like having like a necessarily the same tone that so much of like the post Miller post year one stuff will have, but some of it was, I mean, we, we picked up on it right away that he was, he was getting into some dark areas that felt a little bit lighter in tone, I think because of Davis's art. Yeah. I mean the human shield, the, yeah. the profile prison, prison rape, uh, the, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's uh there's something to be said there that, that Barr definitely took Batman into some – and even in the Batman annual uh, number eight that you brought up, mm-hmm. uh, he lets Rachel Ghoul die in space. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, the, it's the beginning of, I'm not going to kill you, but I don't have to save you. You know, that, that type of thing, mm-hmm. uh, which Batman hadn't gone there before really. So right. Frank's got a point. So uh, Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, it's a shame Alan Davis took the huff and walked off the book. We regular folks have workplace disagreements and just get on with it. But that's artistic personality for you, I suppose. Tom McFarlane gets points for an easily recognizable style, but as you say, his storytelling wasn't great. Mind, a story this bad doesn't deserve a great artist. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Uh, Ward Hill Terry said, You two did a very nice job of articulating the weaknesses of this story, but there's one thing in particular I want to weigh in on. Bruce Wayne's love life. I have never liked Bruce slash Batman's romantic interests, with the exception of Earth-2 semi-retired Bruce waiting for Selina after she's done her time in prison. Catwoman, Talia, Nocturna, etc. should not be able to distract Batman from his mission slash job slash duty. I think that Bruce would sublimate his sexuality the way he would any other interest that takes his mind off of his fighting crime. Any romance that Bruce gets involved in would be just to shore up his image as wealthy, carefree playboy. He has no intention of courting a woman long-term. He may have no sex drive at all. So, this story subplot of Bruce trying to find time to date Rachel is nonsense. 
If Batman had already figured out who the Reaper was, I could see him trying to get close to Rachel as Bruce to get more information. If Bruce had nothing else going on in his life, like tracking down a homicidal maniac, I could see him trying to date someone who would be going away soon. If he had no respect for a woman's decisions about her life, and no thought for how his making a move on his friend's friend would affect all three of them, then he's just a shallow jerk. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is one of the few times when I think Ward and I are almost completely on the same page. I mean, this is how I've always kind of thought. Like, I mean, Bruce is almost priest-like in his sort of, like, like, vow of celibacy, not necessarily avoiding all sexual activity, but the emotional connection to it. Um, Mm. I've always kind of thought that, yeah, Bruce wouldn't settle down, that he would view romance and love and and those kind of interactions as distractions from his, his job, his major cause, and so that it would take a special someone like... Catwoman, uh, who can kind of pierce his defenses, and the way the reason Catwoman is able to do it is because she does live in both parts of his life. But yeah, and but even that, I, d- I don't think they would ever like they could never last except in Earth Two. And now, I mean, I know the comics right now are are putting them together like marriage, which I'm sure that will go off without a hitch. Um, yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I kind of like agree like that. Um, Bruce might get caught up in romances accidentally, but I don't think he would ever seek one out. Like, he would always kind of just push them aside. And, yeah, it's just kind of a a fact of his personality, you know, despite being uh, presumably really good-looking and super rich and being able to have women, like, all over his arms and everything. That's just part of the disguise. Those are just beards. He's really not into love and dating and romance and sex, um, except for the way he can use it to cover cover his butt. Yeah, I, I I tend to agree. I think I think there are those special women that that get through to him in different versions. I mean, if, whether it's uh, it's Andrea Beaumont and in uh, the Mask of the Phantasm, uh, you know, oddly enough, or at Silver Saint Cloud, uh, you know, they they're not they're not part of the plan, as he said in Mask of the Phantasm. Uh, you know, yes, uh, but and I, they, I agree, and that would be the one part where. When you explore that type of story, when the way he's not expecting it and when she does kind of get an end, it throws his whole life out of sorts. Like he right. doesn't know how to be Batman and a lover or, or a boyfriend at the same time. It really right. screws up his whole world the way Andrea Beaumont did. Yeah, that is the exception. And I think you have to look at that type of story and what it does. Yeah. Right. I don't I think he's I think I agree with Ward that that's something we, we touched on how wrong it felt that Bruce was going after this woman who said she was going to be a nun. But the, <laughs> just the fact that he's interested in pursuing this woman that he knows he's really going to have to work on to get anywhere with when he's trying to deal when he's made this life changing decision to take up a gun and he's trying to catch the Reaper. It just does not ring true for this storyline. So it's another one of those that's just kind of just doesn't connect. And it's. It's only because she's the daughter, and that's going to create some dramatic tension as the story goes along that Barr's doing it. So, And our last comment came from longtime listener, first-time commenter, Jay Reitman, who said, As a teen, I loved McFarlane's art on Spider-Man, but gradually learned the error of my ways. I have never read an issue of Spawn, as his writing on the Spider-Man title was an instant red flag to me. And the only Image book I've read to this day has been Saga. Obviously, Image is a different company now than when McFarlane and friends decided to change comics. Has anyone seen the Robert Kirkman's Secret History of Comics on AMC? The episode on Image was very interesting. The episode on Siegel & Schuster is an entire topic of its own. 
You guys mentioned binge-watching Dark Shadows, but did you start with the actual first episode or the first Barnabas episode? I'm currently in the middle of the Laura the Phoenix storyline. Um, I can – one, I, I wanted to watch the Robert Kirkman uh, Secret History of Comics. I didn't get around to it. I need to watch those, uh, particularly the Siegel and Schuster episode I've heard is really good. As far as Dark Shadows, uh, I was told by almost everyone to don't start before Barnabas. Start with Barnabas. Uh, so I started with <laughs> – I started with Barnabas, uh, and uh, you know the show pretty drastically changes uh, once he's there, and it even con- it continues to change. Uh, it, it goes from you know uh, normal people dealing with a horror element in a show to, uh, as somebody put it, looks like a crazy spook show. Every you know, there's all sorts of creatures. There's vampires and ghosts and werewolves and Frankenstein monsters running around. Uh, so I, when I get through the all of the run, I I will probably go back and watch the pre Barnabas episodes uh, just to appreciate them. I think I can appreciate them more by that point. But uh, but yeah, and I am in the I am still in the freaking Adam Bride of Adam storyline. It's like get this get that woman made and get this storyline over with. Jeez, <laughs> I have never seen any of the pre Barnabas episodes. Um, like just when I've been able to like binge them in the more recent couple of years. Uh, Netflix had the show for a little while, and the first episode they had available was the the introduction of Barnabas. Uh, and now it's on Amazon Prime, and it's the same thing. I don't think they have any pre-Barnabas episodes uh, in their archives, so uh, that's just, that's always where I've started. Yeah, I, I think they may have the pre. I think the pre-Barnabas episodes may be out there, but they're called something different. It's like it's like called. Dark Shadows, like the early years or some or something. It's something. It, it's got some weird name. The way they do it on theirs is totally weird because it's like I guess it's by like the DVD collections or mm-hmm, something, mm-hmm. and it's really strange. It's like if you start watching wherever you start watching and you get through it on Prime, the next the next set will come up, so you don't have to go searching for it. Mm, okay. But at the same time, it's it's still it's still very strange <laughs> dark shadows the first 530 episodes that nobody ever talks about <laughs> yeah there you go <laughs> um yeah jay jay finished his uh his message with anyway love the show and thank you very much for that uh thank you everybody who writes in and supports the show uh everybody who leaves a comment we love them uh, everybody who writes in an email, thank you. Everybody who uh, mentions us on Facebook, Twitter. Um, uh, I was going to try and make up like another weird social media thing, but it just nothing was happening there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Friendstagram. Mm. Friendstagram. <laughs> uh, any closing thoughts? Oh, this was just uh, this was such a delight. It was such a it was such a light in the darkness. I it was the, the bat signal shine, you know. Uh, Pat Hingo said he gave us the signal. He turned it on, you know. Uh, you know, uh, it, it was it was uh, it was great. I mean, it was, yep. it, it, and um, you know, I think next time we're going to cover a Batman and a detective, right? Yeah, that's going to be the plan. We did. Uh, we this, this was sort of an experiment. We got through two stories. They were really good, so it was easy to get through both of them. We're going to try and do two stories when they're not as good, um, and we'll see how it goes. But uh, that is the plan going forward, to do a Batman and a detective in the same episode. So we'll see if that grand experiment works out. 
<laughs> and you know what? Just to be fair, you and I ought to start swapping. Like you do a detective, and I have to take a Collins because you've taken all the Collins pretty much. So we should we should swap back and forth who's doing what just to to I'm keep things to think. fair. I think we've <laughs> I think we've only got three Collins left. Okay. Because um, if I remember correctly, he he only wrote eight stories. And we did two before year one. We did the two after with Jason and now this one. So I think we've got three left. Yeah, um, I think yeah. there's a two-face, two-parter, and then yeah. the mine. And yeah. I think that's it. Yeah. I didn't mention before, uh, the Penguin story from this is actually reprinted in the Batman Second Chances trade paperback. So if anybody wants to just get all of the uh, <laughs> Max Allen Collins stories uh, and the, <laughs> the retcon Jason Todd, um, and actually the first couple of Starlin ones too. Um, they're they're all in that trade paperback, including this story. So wow, that's an interesting. So it's basically just the adventures of the post crisis Jason Todd, I guess. Yeah, More. yeah, basically it, it's um it's four hundred one, four hundred two, or four two, four hundred three. Um, so yeah, that two parter, uh, not year one, and then I think it goes up to four fifteen. I think it's when Jason meets Nightwing with Jason meets Dick. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. I think that's where it ends. So. Nice. All right, people, that's it for now. So bye. Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. You can find me, Chris, on Twitter at supermatespod or email me at supermatespodcast.gmail.com. This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening.